0: Hi, I'm Graham Aubrey. You're listening to Resonance <coughs> FM. Because you're worth it? Because you're worth it? <laughs> no, I've taken it too far now. taken it too far?
1: Imagine me what I'm like when I drink beer.
2: This is Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston, and we're coming to you live from Belgium House here in the the legal district of London, right in the inner temple. And Belgium, the great cycling nation of Belgium, has set up in London for the Olympics a cycling paradise. And we're at the heart of it, which is where you'd expect to find The Bike Show. And um, I'm here with one of the people who's responsible
0: for this fantastic place. Right, right. A lot of spectators, a lot of Belgian people here at the Belgium Cycling Paradise. Who thought of bringing such a great
2: uh, cycling paradise and Belgium house to London for the Olympics?
0: The Belgium Olympic Committee decided that uh, they needed to gather the Belgian public, the Belgian fan of sports together with the athlete. And that's why we came here in Middle Temple um, having an indoor a site where the Belgian public can watch the competition on a giant screen together with meet and greet uh, of the athlete coming after the performance on the Olympic Games. And it's a great atmosphere for us. So people can come along, have a beer, have some frites, watch the sports, ride a few bikes here. Absolutely. Uh, enjoy, enjoy the the, the Belgium. Um, beer, as you said, uh, um, and isot-
2: isotonic athletic drinks also are available. Absolutely. Should we take a wander inside?
0: Of course.
2: So uh, we're just now going to walk into the Middle Temple Hall uh, through through the security. And this is a fantastic building, it's absolutely wonderful, and you've got a fantastic screen up there, and it's filled with people right
0: now. Absolutely, lots of people coming from the first day on, uh, first, second day we were full capacity, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon we couldn't get any more people in, so it's a very big success for us indeed.
2: And I can see over here, you've got a sport which, if they had Olympic medal sport, Belgium would win gold silver and bronze the DJing you've got the DJ decks over here absolutely
0: we have live bands organized mostly at night DJ bands athlete coming if they win a medal we had one medal so far uh, a couple days ago with our uh, judo lady uh, Charlene Van Sneek uh, who won the bronze medal
2: I don't think there's any country because a few countries have come along and set up their own national house but I don't think there's any country that's done as well as Belgium is there really
0: I hope so. I would hope so. But uh, the, the, the good thing is for the public is that uh, they can enjoy, of course, the, the live competition on that giant screen. But also, which is very unique, I would say, is that they are able to meet the athlete, which is uh, unique from, uh, from what I heard from the different other National Olympic Committee uh, houses. So uh, there's some tennis going on here. Uh, let's step, Let's step
2: outside again. And uh, you've also got a beautiful garden down overlooking the river, pretty
0: much. Right. When uh, the weather is, uh, is good enough, uh, we, we allow people to go in the garden and to enjoy, again, food, drinks, rest, and um, follow, follow the game through their iPhones or iPad because there's no giant screen outside.
2: Okay, well, and it costs uh, £5 pounds to get into the hall, but to get into the cycling paradise is free. Correct. And, and the garden... It's free also.
0: No, you need to five pounds. Five
2: pounds is a bargain. All right. Exactly. Okay, exactly. well, thanks very much for coming to London. You're very welcome. Thanks to you. So cycling culture in Belgium is really rooted in the nation of Flanders. And Rick van Vallengem is the director of the Museum of the Tour of Flanders in Oudenaarde. And I spoke to him a few moments ago and asked him to explain why cycling was so important for Flanders people.
3: Bike racing has become um, a, a sort of religion in in Belgium, and let's say that the Tour of Flanders is the high mass of that religion. It's much; it has become much more than a, than a, a bike race, than a, a bike event. It has become a, a, a feast, phenomenon, with people doing the most craziest. Things. You can compare it to the Super Bowl, for instance, in, in the United States or something like that. And then you have to go back to, to, to the roots of the whole thing. And then you see that you have legends, myths, uh, heroes, and so on. And it's something that has uh, evolved from father to son almost. So uh, that was the case also with me. And every village in Flanders had its own uh, bike race. You had thousands of bike races in in, in Flanders, so ev- everybody as a young boy was confronted with that. So it's it's for us, it's almost um, evident that that's something.
2: So what's the reason for that enthusiasm? Because, of course, we have the whole of Europe, and people have been racing bicycles, and there have been bicycle races from time to time around the whole of the continent, but it's somehow... It's different in Flanders. It captured the imagination. It's something that, that grows from uh, an, an embryo.
3: Uh, and there are all sorts of of, uh, of aspects and factors that came together. Uh, like the fact that you had one big guy, Carl van Weynendalen, the, the founder of Tour of Flanders. Who was a, 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 a splendid journalist too, and who in, in his writings in, in the newspaper Sport World, Sport World who excited people enormously. He was also a manager, he was a coach of the Belgium team and so on and so on. You, you have had the you had the, the big names, uh Rick van Van Steenberg, Rick van Looy, Eddie Merckx of course. So you had all those uh, stepstones of, of names in the history of, of uh, Flemish and Belgian uh, cycling. And it, it has become something that at a certain moment you, you, you obtain a critical mass and then it's, it's gone. And you
2: have no more control over it and it's, it's craziness. And so if religion and myths appeal to some kind of need that we have for heroes, what are the qualities of the bike racing hero for the people of Flanders what do they look for in the start obviously they look for someone who's going to win but beyond winning what kind of riding do they enjoy to watch
3: well the, the legends always talks in flanders of the the famous mythical flandriens and that that's a guy who does not talk too much who who try to realize his american dream let's say in flanders by by uh, uh winning some money uh racing the the bike he's someone who does not complain he just goes on up to the the moment that he falls dead from his his bike that's the the, the typical uh image that we have of a bike racer in Flanders not uh a, not a big name not a, a, a man of big words uh, but someone who who just is stubborn who 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 uh Goes on and goes on. Of course, someone like Tom Boland, that, that that image doesn't fit him anymore. It, we are in the 21st century,
2: and well, so He's on. a he's a blonde beach boy, yes, good-looking guy, and, who enjoys to party. Yes, he talks. He he he's,
3: he's, he's verbally. He's he's also uh, very good, and uh, we we still uh, like people uh, like coming from from the Eastern countries and so on, who have a little bit the same mentality that you have to. To, to fight, to earn your living, that, that's a little bit how the mentality is in, in Flanders.
2: And is that a reality for people in cycling? Do young Flemish kids think, well, this might be a way for me to realize my American dream, as you put it, to, to make money by racing my bike? Or is that really in the past now?
3: Well, more and more, it it has it's something of the past uh, after the the, the Merck's uh, era, let's say. Um, that, then you you had the the 80s and so on, and and uh, things uh, eco- economically also got better and better. So, the urge to to um, to suffer on a on a bike uh, was not that uh, high anymore. But now you see, you see the more and more the, the last couple of years again that the, the tradition in, in, in Flanders is working again. So you, you had a, a dip of yeah. 10 to 15 years, the era um, after Merckx, because he, he was the um, so overwhelming and so dominant that uh, they compared everything that came after him with him. And, and so, of course, then you have a dip. But mentally, that uh, we could um, take a distance of, of this and, and it's, uh, we are in, in, in good shape. The, the Belgian bike racing scene is in good shape
2: again. That was Rick van Wallengem of the Museum of the Tour of Flanders in Odenaard. Now I'm just going to step inside the cycling paradise and find out what's going on in here. And uh, we're standing here. There's a man on... A turbo trainer that's, he's riding over like a really famous ride in the Tour of Flanders, right? What's this? What's going on here? It's a Koppenberg. He's riding up the Koppenberg. as a man, riding up the Koppenberg. How is it? I've only just started, so it's easy at the minute. And how do the cobbles feel? They feel bumpy. They do actually, yeah, you can really feel it. I'll let you know at the end. So this is one of the most famous hills in Flanders, yeah. right? Yeah, this is one of the, one of the most famous ones. And, and what do you think, watching people doing this, what are they learning about, about your country? That they're suffering a lot. Belgium is making them suffering, so it's not so funny for them, but for us it's nice to watch. Well, Belgium House is going to be here for the Olympics and the Paralympics, but it will all disappear. Fortunately, there's another place that's set up which won't disappear, which is the Rafa Club that's opened in the heart of London's Soho. Uh, You may have remembered there was a pop-up shop on uh, Theobalds Road or Old Street a couple of years ago. Well, they've gone permanent and I went down to the launch of the RAFA Cycle Club to speak with RAFA founder Simon Mottram. Well, I'm standing... In the heart of London's Soho with Simon Mottram outside the new Raffa club shop that is just opening this evening. Where well, the opening party is this evening, it'll be open for business tomorrow. You must be a happy
4: man. Very happy man. I mean, who'd have thought eight years ago that we'd be in the middle of Soho with a permanent shop, stroke cafe, stroke club? It's well, amazing.
2: I, I was going to remind you of that because eight years ago there was the Kings of Pain exhibition in the Truman Brewery in London's Brick Lane and there was a couple of guys with a couple of jerseys,
4: an H van and a plan. There's still a couple of guys, there's still an H van in there it's actually very like Kings of Pain it's pretty much the same idea, it's live racing, it's great products, amazing cycling, memorabilia and a a place to hang out if you're a cyclist. And meanwhile while you've been building up this multi-million pound
2: (laughs) empire Thingy. Thingy, this multi-million pound enterprise. A London bike racer riding for a British team. is on the verge of winning the Tour de France. I mean, you would not have thought that, that he would be joining the pantheon of the people you had on the wall at the Kings of Pain show.
4: With a world champion and with a potential Olympic champion and the Olympics, you know, happening, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you would never have thought that British cycling would get anywhere near that. And Uh, how much of the credit are you taking at (laughs) Rafa? Only just over 50%. No, the, 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 the majority take in yeah different. I think we'd, we'd like the most I mean Dave Brailsford's done quite well but I think you know actually it's down to us leading the way but you have I mean it's all, in all seriousness you have always tried
2: to give a lot back to cycling particularly in London but in the other places around the world where you're operating as well?
4: We do a lot of things. Yeah, we, we don't like to just sell products because that's really boring. What we really enjoy is putting on events, putting on races, celebrating the sport. So we have a huge amount of fun, but it's exhausting because every week or two weeks around the world there is a big RAFA event of some kind. But it's much better that way. I mean, much better than just selling schmutter.
2: And when you started, for the first few years that you were going, you were the only people producing stylish cycling apparel. Yeah. Now there's a bit of competition, isn't there?
4: There is. Yeah, we, we've um, we've had some wonderful imitators along the way, and I think that's good because the general standard's definitely risen. And some of them get too close for comfort in terms of being influenced by us. But in general, it's fine. You know, we're happy to to lead an increase in the general style stakes. I think that's that's a wonderful thing to have done. And so when you started out, did you? Buy some merino futures. No, I wish I had. In fact, the price of merino has gone up quite a lot in the last couple of years, so it's getting more and more difficult. Yeah, we, we might do. We might buy a flock of sheep at some point. That might be a good investment. But uh, no, I wish I had.
2: That was Simon Mottram, the director of rafa and Rapha, of course, played a big part in the process of making cycling something that was kind of fashionable again. I think cycling was fashionable once upon a time, or it certainly was fashionable in the 1890s when the high society people were on their bikes. But I think, you know, people wore nice, attractive, good clothing throughout much of the 20th century. But it all seemed to go wrong with the adoption of man-made fibres, which I think was probably in the 70s and 80s, and then the kind of sportification of cycling, where cycling looks like it's something that's very hard work and difficult to do, and, and, and people dressed in a way... That might be appropriate if you're competing in the Olympics and you've got a fantastic physique, but you know, if you're just an ordinary person, it's you know not flattering. Or Rafa obviously started that process, and since then, lots of other companies have, have kind of found their niches in the world of cycle style. And one of them is a company called Vulpine. And here with me is Nick Hussey, who started Vulpine. Am I saying it right? Um, Volpine. Volpine, Volpine. Volpine. Okay. Whatever suits. <laughs> All right, well, welcome to the bike show, Nick. Thank you very much, Jack. Tell me about the kind of clothing that you're wanting to uh, to sell to us cyclists. I mean, you're a cyclist yourself, of course, so do you have a journey that led you to... to uh, going into starting a clothing company.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I started uh, cycling when I was 13 and Channel 4 started showing the Tour de France in the mid-80s, which dates me a little bit, and basically I just fell in love with the sport as a pure racer, you know, the glory of suffering and all that, and um, I I, I just got obsessed by racing, drove my mum crazy, but I injured myself, uh, I really did my back in when I was about 19 and I had to stop. And I just started treating cycling differently and looking at it in a different way. Every ride was a bonus. I was riding in a different way. I wasn't racing hardcore. And I just got into the creative side of things. I was running clubs. I ended up leaving the film business to start this company. So I had a strong creative background, very visual background, design, etc. And I just became more and more frustrated for quite a long time with the fact that I couldn't wear cycling clothing in a normal environment, that I was a laughing stock. Um, And a lot of the time I was quite bullish and I just thought, you know, I'm just going to wear anyway. But at the same time, I thought a lot of people aren't as bullish as I am and just want to be able to blend in. Um, But say something about themselves, say, I am a cyclist, I wear cycling clothing, but I'm also going to go to a restaurant and a bar and be normal and not smell. And I thought, why on earth has this not happened? You know, the the technology is out there. Um, And also I was very frustrated by design elements. And Rafa just i can remember them launching 2004 and just hitting the nail on the head you know i can remember it was like an uh, epiphany and just going ah, oh, you know two really positive negative things about it uh, positive i just thought they've totally got it they, they just finally someone's got it and then the other point was oh god they've got it there before me because i've been thinking about this for ages i think a lot of people have it's not that rafa necessarily just suddenly sprouted up this uh, this thing from nowhere and suddenly everyone's gone oh hang about have never thought about that there's a lot of fr- frustrated people out there but they had the balls to go and do it i know how hard it was for Simon to do it because i've met him and he told me and you know i've got huge respect for that so they've got they've got a huge uh, head start and they've sort of shown people that it's possible what i felt for quite a while was that there still wasn't an inclusive we- uh, brand and something that uh, people could wear who Likes all kinds of cycling. Rafa's a very specifically racing led brand um, and uh, has a sort of love it, hate, hate it relationship.
2: Because yeah, they have come in for a fair bit of criticism, haven't they? For, well, I suppose the first criticism is the price, but then there's also that kind of cooler than thou type of thing, you know, and everything being very black and very uh, serious and sort of urban. Yeah, and they've totally bought into the epic thing. It's almost a joke now.
5: It's epic trademark, you know, uh, that, that Rep Rafa have. And, uh, and so what Simon will tell you is if you, if you meet him, you will say, look, we've, some people love it, some people hate it. And uh, it's good to get a, a sort of um, a real clash of reactions because that means people are passionate about what they do. I love passion, so I'm, I'm cool with that. But I come from a racing background, but I actually have become much more inclusive about cycling. And just I love cycling. I think it's a joyful thing to do. And that's quite a contrary sort of thing. So anyway, th- I didn't create Volpine directly as a sort of difference to refer i just thought i want something that's more of a sort of um british casual style and is inclusive of women and people all kinds of cyclists i do all kinds of cycling and i didn't think it was catered for and i just wanted to do something i enjoyed you know i, I loved cycling since i was a kid and uh and my wife finally booted me into leaving my job in film to to start this you know and and it's pretty terrifying
2: and so sort of here we are three months later so three months since your launch. Well, let's start talking a bit about the clothes. You've gone big for merino, which I think is a very sensible choice. I mean, it's a remarkable fabric. It's it doesn't smell bad. It it, it feels cool when it's hot and warms you when it's cool. If you get rained on, it kind of doesn't seem to feel soggy and wet and dries pretty quickly. Um, the moths love it. Um, have you got anyone found some? moth-proof merino some gm moth-proof merino out there i have never experienced a moth eating uh, e- moth eating merino yeah, i've got I, I can show you some really? very sorry specimens <laughs> yeah yeah i guess everyone who thinks about it seriously thinks we're going to make the best thing is going to go heavy on this product because it yeah. really works doesn't it what was really good fun
5: was building technical clothing that could be worn casually from scratch and so i thought right i'm going to start from the top what are the best fabrics and i tried everything polyester mixes cotton all kinds so for for the uh, skin hugging sort of garments it was always going to be merino once i'd done that research um, and development and so i just went for the best it's expensive fabric to buy and that's why you see it expensive in the shops you know because that that cost is
2: uh it's transmitted onwards but um, i've heard it said that there are different kinds of merino that you know, there are different grades, like there is for cotton There's or, or for wool. There's sort of virgin wool and that kind of thing. Have you had to make a journey of education, educating yourself about this merino and that merino? And do we want it from Chinese sheep or New Zealand sheep? or you know, where, yeah. where are your sheep from, Nick?
5: My, my sheep are from Tasmania. Um, so it's a cool environment, um, but it's not overly harsh. You can't really grow merino in the UK uh, yet. When I say grow merino, they're sheep. Um but uh, you, um, it's a perfect environment for them. New Zealand's also very good. But Australian merino is, is excellent, and I use ultra-fine. And um, it was just a case of just literally feeling and trying, wearing fabrics to find the right thing. I, I'm not a believer in jargon. I'm not a believer in we tell you it's good, so you must buy it. I just tried it for myself. And the great thing was, fortunately or unfortunately, it took me over two years to create the company from when I left my job. I had loads of time to do research and development and loads of iterations.
2: We changed things as we went until we got something that was bang on. And so there must be lots of different parts of the process of starting a clothing company apart from trying on a few Merino jerseys and thinking of a name. What have been the biggest unexpected challenges to getting where you are now? And you're still really at the beginning, aren't you?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And we're at the beginning and it's, it's so bizarre that I'm stood here talking to you now because... We're so early into uh, the life of the company. I mean, for me, it's a long way along the line. But um, we're already getting great attention. So that's great. So anyway, basically, when I left film, uh, the first thing I did was I, I said, right, what do I want to do with this company? Um, how, uh, how many things do I need to learn? And that, no- that amount of learning just expanded constantly. A lot of people said to me, if you knew how hard it was to create a clothing company, let alone a startup in this economic environment, you wouldn't bother. And that's kind of like a red rag to a bull for me. Um, So the first thing I did was I just thought, I don't know how to make this stuff. I need to uh, check out the manufacturing. The hardest thing was to uh, find out how to manufacture the stuff, which is a a learning process that I was fine with, but to find factories and fabric manufacturers who actually work with me, that was the shock. It wasn't simply a case of me going, hello, I've got some money. Can I have some clothing, please? Because... The best factories are big factories. The best factories, unfortunately, um, will only work with the best brands. And I wasn't a brand. I was nowhere. I was nothing. I didn't even know the the right jargon to use when I was talking to them. So I got laughed out at first. And so I just had to keep pushing and learning how to talk to them until I was taken seriously. I had to persuade them, almost with a business plan, that I was serious and that Volpine would work and that i you know i I had my head screwed on and that was a surprise i thought i was the client and i just get what i wanted Uh, not at all that's the biggest struggle working with the factories and convincing them to work with you because they want to make things in thousands for you and i can't afford to make thousands that would destroy me you know so they're basically doing a favor by manufacturing and that's a very strange experience to overcome so where are your factories well that's of the interesting story because uh in China and South Korea and people would go well some people will go hang about why is he using Southeast Asia cheap and cheerful not at all basically it was always going to be um, going for the best and so I started off looking in the UK I thought I really want this to be a UK uh, based brand I'm British you know fantastic manufacturing in the UK It's not here anymore. It's it's in patchy parts of the UK. If you want to get really high, consistent technical clothing, unfortunately, it's not here at the moment because there's no investment. Because it's cheaper elsewhere, and now all the investment has gone off to to Southeast Asia. That means that the best facilities, the cleanest facilities, the most technologically advanced facilities are over there too. I tried Europe, and they simply weren't delivering on certain garments. We are starting to use a bit of Europe, a bit of USA, a bit of UK, for garments that are
2: coming out in the future. But actually, the I mean, I guess the question is not... Is it made in Britain? That's good. Is it made in China? That's bad. I guess the question that people might ask is what are the people who work in your factories being paid? Is there exploitation of of children? Are people working 16-hour days and being abused? Are your factories meeting the standards that we'd expect them to meet? Are their workers allowed to join unions and that kind of thing? Obviously, you've said that you've not been able to go in there and say, I want this, I want that, I want this. You've been more... you know, asking them to do you a favour. But w- w- what's the what's what's it like to be a worker who's making a full pine jersey?
5: Becoming increasingly similar to somebody who's making a, a jersey in Europe. Uh, when I was visiting factories in Portugal, they were uh, subsisting basically because uh, manufacturing is on, on its knees there, unfortunately, um, and the factories weren't in a particularly great state. Uh, in China, South Korea. the Factories so I use are extremely technologically advanced. And the problem is for Southeast Asia increasingly is that their wages are going up all the time because they're demanding better conditions, better wages, um, in parity for the rest of the world. Um, if they use the best people, that means they then have to compete corporate uh, style for the best staff, and that means that you've got people working in factories, you know, that are not nine-year-olds on on uh, looms, you know, in backwaters. This is a a big sort of brightly lit factory, uh, a sanitized factory with with highly skilled people who have been headhunted for to work in the best factories. it's. Um, I actually, to be honest, uh, find it slightly patronising sometimes when people say that uh, Asia is going to be this sort of third-world system where things are not quite as good as here because actually they're much better because that's where the money is and that's where the skill is at the moment. But it will change and it will come back to Europe and the UK because at the moment we're
2: behind and that's the level will, you know, will alter with time and that will be great. So talk us through some of the range that you've got out that people can buy right now. There are
5: five garments. Basically, got uh, two merino gums, a jersey and a t shirt. We're doing very well at the moment. Uh, a jacket, a, an alternative to the horribly geeky hive is vest, which is a gilet that we do, which is
2: still uh, high visibility. Uh, and a rain jacket, which is our best selling garment at the moment, sadly. Well, well, that tells you something about the summer that we've been having, but that's good to hear that it's selling well. And if people want to have a look and a feel of um, the Vulpine stuff, are you stocked in shops at the moment? Yeah, in the UK, it's uh, Tokyo Fixed Only in London. We're an
5: online brand, but um, people can check it out there. Um, And we're hoping to get a couple more shops to
2: really get our product in the the UK in the near future. And are you going to have a chance to look at any of the cycling this Olympics? were you out there looking at the road race at the weekend
5: yeah I was there um, by the roadside on the Box Hill Circuit on Saturday took loads of photos which are on the Volpine blog Um, I had an amazing time for me it just the, the change in the culture of cycling I've written a lot about this I just can't believe it 27 years as a pro fan and to suddenly see it all centred around the UK we know it's just incredible, and then Sunday was an amazing race that that was such good fun to watch and so good for women's cycling. And then I'm hoping to wangle tickets to the velodrome because I tried to buy forty.
2: You <laughs> know, I haven't got the money, but I just thought I'd try and get forty in You're case. Thinking, shall I yeah. make an order for a uh, hundred soft shell jackets or forty tickets to the velodrome? Pretty much, yeah, and
5: I didn't get a single ticket. So thank God for my credit card, but um, uh, it's very sad for my um, fandom. So hopefully I'll I'll be able to wangle something in the next week or so.
2: Great, well, thanks very much. We're heading up to the hour here on The Bike Show, broadcasting live with a whole uh, basket full of technical hitches. Chris Dixon has been sterlingly manning the technology uh, from from his pew here. But this is the last show in the season that began, I think, at the beginning of the year. I'm taking a couple of months off. There may be one or two things on the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber to the podcast, you'll find it on iTunes or by Googling for the Bike Show podcast. Until the beginning of October, this is me, Jack Thurston, saying thanks very much for listening and enjoy the rest of the Olympics and what's left of our British summer. Cheerio. Goodbye.
4: I have to pack your wings you know.
2: Well, Chris is uh, just mounted a uh, rather nice looking Ridley road bike. And he's going to uh, ride up the Koppenberg apparently. All right, Chris. Yes. How's it going?
1: Um, just waiting for it to start up. Okay, but, uh, more technical troubles. Yeah. <laughs> Koppenberg is loading. That's quite a, a strange concept, isn't it? Really, just going Insta- to boot the Koppenberg. <laughs> Install the Koppenberg. Is that the climb there? Is that the gradient?
2: Oh, look, where? we've got. There's a record list here. <laughs> so it's three minutes or something. Okay. Like the top tube on this is huge. Work. I'm only five foot
1: seven, and I've got like arms like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So this is going to be a challenge in yeah. itself. Are you ready? Okay, so I think we're just going to start now.
3: Be a, be a countdown. A
1: countdown. Okay. Five. And here we go.
2: And he's off. All right, go and catch the motorbike. Oh, I
1: can't even reach the blooming gears. Hang on.
2: Chris is putting out 130 watts. That's probably not very much, is it? (laughs) At 92 RPM.
1: God, the cadence on this is really weird. I'm used to... (laughs) You need to get into the big ring. Okay, hang on. Maybe. On a a hill climb. (laughs) Come on, then. Here we go. Oh, no, no, no. I think out of not, the seat. Think, yeah, that's a little... Yeah, big ring riding try. up the Copperberg yeah.
2: is, is uh, beyond. Look, that's a nice crowd there yeah, cheering yeah, no, you no, on. I
1: can, I can really feel the atmosphere of it right now.
2: Well, you've got Nick from <laughs> Volpine who's I'm looking gonna... out, outside. Uh, yeah, you, come, on, come on in, Nick. It's getting tougher now.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm taking the chain off here, guys. Oh, that's
2: OK. There you go. So oh, I, I actually saw Fabian Cancellara break his there chain on the Koppenberg a few years ago. I'm not surprised. So there we go. Oh, we've fallen back to 120 watts.
1: Okay. And I've got no brain, uh, oxygen in my brain at all. So you're not going to get much sense out of me from <laughs> now on.
2: Keep going, keep going. <laughs> You're heading up, you, you're the, the motor is pulling away from you. The photographer has obviously decided he doesn't want to take any pictures. <laughs> but you can see the top now, you can see the top now, a final push. This is where it gets really narrow and really steep. Come on, keep going, 12.5% slope, 13%. Yes! Come on! Up to He's 200 watts, 200 watts, you can do it. Come on, Chris! Come on, Chris! Is this the top of the hill? It's the top of the hill! <laughs> There you go. You're off the cobbles now. You're off the cobbles, flat. and I think that's it. Uh, do they let you? Uh, do they let you stop? I don't know how it works.
4: <laughs> I want to keep going. Now yeah, I've going. that.